Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. This conversation is all around the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Mike, we talked about the first letter last time. So has time elapsed between the two? Uh, Yes, we've got some couple of years or so between the two letters. And as I said, when we were looking at 1 Corinthians, there there are probably two other letters to the Corinthian church that are lost. Now, it doesn't mean we've lost part of our Bible. simply means the Holy Spirit didn't think that we needed to have those letters. But we can work out that between Paul's writing of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, He had certainly written one other letter. Why? Because he refers to it in this letter. He refers to it as a severe letter. So clearly they'd not responded in the way that he had wanted them to and had had to write this severe letter. Also, after he had left them, some people had come in claiming to be, well, he calls them in this letter super apostles, There were people who were looking down on Paul and his simple message of the gospel and his emphasis on suffering. And so they were coming in and really undermining much of Paul's message. So now around 55, 56 AD, Paul will write this letter. And the heart of it is he is just really relieved that they have received his previous rebukes well. And again, just a refresher, this is to a group of believers in the city of Corinth. He's writing from somewhere else, presumably, to them to help them, encourage them. Yes, he's in Macedonia, we, we know, probably in the city of Philippi when he writes this. And he's writing back to this group of Christians in Corinth. And as we said in the previous episode, this big sort of multicultural, multi-ethnic, buzzing, cosmopolitan, commercial city with all that big city life brought with it, busy harbour, busy port, lots of immorality went on there, plus the home to the great temple of Aphrodite where there were temple prostitutes where you could go as part of your worship. So this big buzzing city that was really quite immoral and so Paul had had to challenge them to stop allowing the culture of the city around them coming in. And uh, in a sense, 2 Corinthians, there's there's an awful lot of relief in 2 Corinthians that some of the tough things he'd had to say and some of the tough things he'd had to write at last are bearing fruit with this church that he just loved so much that he was responsible for establishing himself. Because it looks as if this is the fourth letter, in a sense, um, what's his opening gambit this time? Well, his opening gambit is relief. <laughs> you know, he I, I said that he really felt passionate about this church. You know, he loved these guys. This is not some high official sitting up in an office sending diktats down. These are people that he loves and he was pained so deeply that they had got themselves into such a, a mess. And, and and so there's relief, and the, the letter starts with a beautiful passage about the God of all comfort, because when he was going through these anxieties about them, he had really found that God had come and comforted him. In fact, one of the sort of 
beautiful passages in this whole letter is is there in chapter one. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. And, And that's what he'd experienced. You know, he'd been through really quite anguishing times over them. His news that things had gone well, that they'd received him, that the sort of tensions between them had been resolved. He's just so happy. And and he says, you know, God so comforted me in all of that. But by the way, Paul's always thinking outward and beyond himself. God comforts us so that we can then go on and comfort others. And now he's going to do that in this letter. And it's a letter of much reassurance as well as encouragement. I guess in the time that he's been away from that group of believers, people have joined that group of believers who have never met him, didn't know his backstory, etc. And, you know, new people have, there's a new kid on the block, as it were. Yes. And as I said, there there were some who were coming in as so-called super apostles. Um, they're described as people who really felt that that they had it, you know, And this poor Apostle Paul, really, you know, with all these sufferings that he's going on about, really, if he were a true apostle, then he wouldn't be experiencing any of this. So there are some new people who've come in, but there are also some new people who've come in since he'd left who, frankly, are are looking down their nose at their founding apostle. And and so, you know, he, he also he's appealing, but he's also reminding them of the relationship that they have together. And that's one of the themes that, that comes out in this letter. Does he have to sort of defend himself to some extent? Yeah, there's one thing in particular that he has to defend himself about, and that comes out in chapter one. Some of these folk were accusing him of constantly changing his mind. You know, this apostle, he's always saying he's coming, And then he doesn't turn up. What sort of apostle is that? How can we trust someone like that? And, of course, much of that was because of circumstances that arisen where Paul was or he had to change his plans. And and so there's this part at the end of chapter one where he he has to sort of almost defend his own uh, self and, and say, look, my conscience is clear about this. Yes, I didn't come when I said, but but there were particular reasons for that but don't worry guys that i am coming and he goes on to say that that god is faithfully and his yes is yes and his no is no and that's the sort of person that i want to be as well so there's a little sort of defense of his own integrity there at the beginning of the letter as the letter unfolds, and you've said before that these letters would have been read publicly, um, not just read privately. Yeah. So what what are they going to be receiving? What are they going to be hearing? Well, one of the first things he's got to deal with is, is a particular issue that's come up in the church, having sort of dealt with that reason I didn't come and visit you. In chapter two, he has to deal with an issue where the church had not forgiven someone who had repented. And he urges them to offer forgiveness for the sinner and says, look, the punishment he's received is enough. And it looks like, although we're not told, it looks like he is probably referring to the man in 1 Corinthians that he wrote about who had committed a case of incest that 
clearly was horrifying. And it's quite right that they were horrified. But clearly now this man has repented and been through a process of restoration and now wants to come back into the church and the church seems unwilling to welcome him back. And, and Paul has to remind them that, come on, this is not the gospel. He, he's repented. He's been through a process. It really is now time to forgive. There is a time to draw a line and begin again. So that's one of the first things that he has to jump in with in this letter. No, we're not in danger of doing that today. I, I think it's probably the very opposite that we are in danger of today very often, isn't it? And again, maybe influenced by our culture, which is basically whatever, anything goes. And if anything, we are perhaps in danger of being too light on sin today, um, maybe not excluding someone from Christian fellowship or being allowed to take communion as not punishment, but as a process of helping them be restored to right relationship with Jesus and the church. So um, the point is probably still well made, but it's probably the opposite one that we are in danger of today. But what about somebody who has truly repented? Is there a danger that they can, in our world, still be judged and treated in the wrong way? You know, there are probably things for all of us that we think are beyond the pale. Uh, I suppose if you were to say to me what really would go in that category for you would be someone who abused children. You know, I, I find that, oh man, I can't even begin to conceive of how I can conceive of how adults could choose to do all sorts of things with one another. But to take an innocent child and to abuse them is horrific. But maybe here's a, a good test for us. If someone who had done that today which is probably the equivalent of what had gone on there in 1 Corinthians, if they had truly, truly repented, shown proof of it, there was fruit of it, they had walked through it with a brother or sister who had mentored them to get them out of it to make sure there was no risk of this anymore, if they had submitted themselves to whatever discipline you want me to do. I'll be accountable. I'll check in every day with you. You can ask me any questions you like. And all the protection, would we be ready to welcome them back in? I hope we would, because God our Father is always ready to welcome people back in. And yes, it is right and appropriate that we have checks and safeguards in place, of course, but I wonder what our heart would be, or would be Paul be writing a letter to us saying, okay, they've paid the penalty for what they did. They've been through a process. It is now time to welcome them back in. I wonder how we would respond. So a lot of Paul's advice is about relationships, I guess, and how people deal with each other both within that group of believers and beyond? Yes, there's an awful lot about relationships here. Lovely pictures of him describing us as having treasure in jars of clay. We've got God's treasure within us. But you know what? We are jars of clay at the end of the day. We're human. We will 
get things wrong. And yet at the end of the chapter three, we're all those who, as we look to the Lord, are being transformed into his likeness from one degree to another. And it takes some of us a bit longer in some areas than others to do that. But appeals there to see one another like that. There's a lot in chapter five about the ministry of reconciliation, which was a big theme for Paul. Reconciliation is the bringing together of two parties that were opposed to one another. And, you know, he reminds us that when we put our trust in Jesus, the gulf that was between us, the The breakdown in relationship between us is restored in Jesus. And in chapter five, Paul says, come on, if you have been reconciled to God, then you should also be reconciled to one another. In fact, not only reconciled to one another, but God has made us Christ's ambassadors to go out into the world with the message of reconciliation. So a lot there at the end of chapter five about this important theme of living as reconciled people with God, with one another. Now go out and take that out into the world and be ambassadors for God with his message that God wants to be reconciled to people. It sounds like Paul very often has general advice about general issues, but then sometimes has very specific advice about very specific issues. Yeah, absolutely, David. At the end of chapter six, there's a a very specific piece of advice about not being yoked together with unbelievers, he describes it as. Putting that in simple terms, Christians don't get married to non-Christians. You know, why? What, What is... What does light and darkness have in common with one another? How can they have partnership together? And he's got some quite strong imagery there at the end of chapter six and some quotes from the Old Testament. He pulls some verses about talking about the the folly of Christian marrying a non-Christian, because that's something that just really gets in the way of our walk with Jesus. So I would say out of that today, if there are people listening to this who are considering at the moment marrying a non-Christian, you know, and you hope that you'll then get them saved, listen, make sure they're saved first before you go into that. Let's also add, by the way, that in 1 Corinthians, Paul is very clear that if you become a Christian and your partner doesn't, you're not to divorce them. You're to stay with them. You're to keep praying for them. But here, yeah, a very specific piece of, I was going to say advice, but really it is instruction because this is something that's repeated throughout scripture in both Old Testament and New Testament. That, you know, if we're truly a follower of Jesus, then we will want to marry someone who is equally passionate about following Jesus too. So he's very clear and very specific there. I do want to put in here probably two things. Just an encouragement to to anyone listening to this episode who is a Christian and who's not yet found their life partner. My encouragement to you out of not just this passage, but the whole of scripture is, you know, don't sell yourself short. I've seen people in the past who have 
married unbelieving partners and while they may have been okay about them going to church, is, is that really what you want? Just them being okay with the most important thing and person in your life? My encouragement is just to keep waiting on God and see what he would do for you. The second thing is it may be that someone listening to this is a Christian, but they are already married to a non-Christian. Now, Paul's very clear about that as well back in 1 Corinthians, where he says that absolutely you are not to divorce. Marriage is a covenant before God. He sees that as important. Don't walk away from your partner. Now, if they choose to walk away from you because of your faith, that's a different thing, but you're not to walk away from them. You're not to divorce them. In fact, keep praying for them, Paul says. Who knows? You know, they might yet be saved, but that's not to become an excuse for us deliberately going into a marriage with a non-Christian partner. Paul says, what partnership can light and darkness have? And as a pastor of many years' experience, I can tell you it's simply not worth it. If Jesus truly is the most important person in your life, if you are trying to build your life around him, how on earth can you continue to do that when you start to share your life with someone who does not share that same value? So Paul obviously has a lot of important things to say about relationships. What does he say about money? Oh, he's got a big section about that. And that's partly because some of these false apostles who come in were challenging Paul that not only did he not keep his promises and turn up when he said he would, but there were even hints that perhaps he'd been, you know, snaffling a little bit from the offering that had been taken up for uh, the church in Jerusalem. And so there's a, a big section in the middle of this letter chapters eight to nine, and it flows on a little bit into chapter 10, but is all about generous giving. And the generous giving is not to him. This is not Paul making appeal for his ministry to be supported. Now, I could go off at a tangent here and talk about how very often on some Christian TV programs, you can see the constant appeal is for money for that person or that ministry. Paul does not make an appeal here for himself. He makes an appeal for the poor and suffering church in Jerusalem. And he's actually very clever because um, he, he holds up the Christians in Macedonia in another part of Greece as sort of an example and provocation and says, you know, the Macedonians have done great. They've they've gone way beyond it. And you, you can see what he's trying to do here. But there's some fantastic teaching in these two chapters that are still very relevant uh, about the whole principle of giving today. And sum it up like this. First, he said, God loves a giver. Why? Because God is a giving God. Everything about God is giving. And, and so God loves it when we give because we're sort of reflecting that we are truly his children. He gave his son. That's how much he gave. So come on, be a giver because God loves a giver because he's a giver. Second, he says, God loves a generous giver. He himself was generous. And so he calls us to sow generously with our reward, with our resources 
saying, using a farming illustration, that, you know, if we sow generously, we'll reap generously. Now, this is not him saying, give in order to get. He's saying, give, brackets. And you know what? When you do give, God will make sure that you have plenty. So God loves a giver. Second, God loves a generous giver. Third, he said, God loves a willing giver. Our giving needs to be out of a sense we want to do this, not because I'm standing here with a big stick, Paul says, telling you to do so. And then fourthly, God loves a cheerful giver uh, in chapter nine. He wants us to give willingly and cheerfully, not cheerfully because it costs us nothing, but cheerfully because we we understand that the whole of the Christian message is a message about giving. So, yeah, if you want to know about giving, read 2 Corinthians 8, 9, some fantastic principles there that are still as relevant for us today. Is this the letter where Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh? It's a phrase you actually hear people use nowadays. Yes, and it comes in a section of the letter where Paul is talking about these false apostles who've been accusing him from chapter 11 onwards, where they were saying, how can this guy be a real apostle? He's always going on about suffering. If he were a real apostle, uh, you know, it would be constant victory. Uh, he would have no illnesses. You still hear that kind of message today, don't you? And actually what Paul goes on to do in chapter 11 is to say suffering. Actually, I'll boast about my suffering. If you want me to boast about anything, I'll boast about my suffering. Why? Because when we suffer, we are walking the way of Jesus. And there's some great insights into his life at the end of chapter 11, where he talks about some of the things that he'd actually experienced about being in prison and being flogged. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Don't be an apostle, eh? And what he's saying is that these are the true hallmarks of a follower of Jesus. Jesus was the one who suffered. Why do we think as his followers that the same won't come our way? And then he goes on in chapter 12 to talk about how there was an experience he had once when he was caught up to heaven, he describes it. In fact, it was such a mystical experience. He doesn't actually know whether it was real or in a vision or a dream or whatever, but he knows he had this powerful encounter and was caught up to the heavens. Uh, and it was such a powerful experience and an encouragement from Jesus that then he had to have something that stopped him getting boastful about this. And he goes on to say in chapter 12 that to keep me from becoming conceited because of these great revelations that he'd had on that occasion, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses that he's just listed in the previous chapter, so that Christ's power may rest on me. 
That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So here he gets this thing that he recognizes came from Satan, but that God consciously allowed to keep him in a humble place. I love that bit where he says, I I prayed three times about this. There's almost a sort of indignation and surprise there. Come on, Lord, I prayed three times about this and you've still not taken it away. So Paul clearly believed in the power of prayer and in healing. And yet what it had taken was for the Lord to come and say, Paul, this is something I've permitted in your life. And the picture of a thorn in the flesh is literally of someone walking along the roadside and scraping themselves on a bush and getting this thorn and going, ow. And and he couldn't get it out and saying, come on, Lord, get this thorn out. And Paul being told by God, no, Paul, it's there just to remind you, this is about me, not you. It's about you depending on me. What was it? The short answer is we don't know. Some scholars have thought, was it something like, malaria but that's a guess to be honest because malaria comes and goes some others have thought was it a problem with his eyes because in one of his letters he actually ends up by saying see with what large letters i write this in my own hand was it some sort of glaucoma some sort of eye problem we simply don't know but it was something that he had that he prayed to god to take away and 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 god wouldn't because it kept him humble. I actually had an experience of this myself when I went to theological college many years ago now, and uh, I did pretty okay in my studies there. But in my first year, I was in a, a lecture one day, furiously writing my notes in the days when you still had to write notes and didn't have laptops, of course. And I suddenly felt it was almost like something snapped is the only way I can describe it. And pain shot up my arm and up my neck. And a long story short, I went to doctors and physios and osteopaths. And it was really painful for me to sit in classes during a lecture. It was painful to write. And I prayed so many times, God, take this away. And this was actually the verse God gave to me. My grace is sufficient for you. And I realized it was about keeping me humble. And here's the weird thing. Pretty much on the day that I graduated, after three years at that seminary, it disappeared. It went away. And for me, that had been my thorn in the flesh for that season. To not get carried away with my cleverness and my learning and my theological skills, but to keep me very close to Jesus, constantly coming back to him and depending on him. And, you know, if there are people listening to this today who've walked with illness or some problem for a long time. I I commend this verse to you. My grace is sufficient. It was for Paul. It has been for me. And it absolutely can be for you too. You said before that for Paul, this wasn't about him. It's about Jesus. And is that really what the whole letter is about? Yes, I think it is. It, it, It is about Jesus. It's not about Paul the apostle. It's not about super apostles. It is about Jesus. And actually, you know, that's what it's all about, this Christian life, isn't it? At the end of the day, it's not about church structures and leadership and this program or that program. 
or this preacher or that preacher. It is about Jesus. And I think that's really what shines out in this letter, whether it's how we forgive people or how we receive leaders or how we give generously. It is all about Jesus. And that's why this is a great letter to read. It brings us back to Jesus and it reminds us that as we come to him, not only has the old gone and the new has come and we've become a new creation, one of the great verses in this book, but there really is grace from him for every situation that we face if we keep our eyes on him and keep walking with him. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.